0: Hey, what up? Thanks for listening to Work Stuff. For this episode, I sat down with another former co-worker from Flowcast, this time from the product side, Ainsley Moffitt. I always knew him as a product manager, but he actually was one of the first customer success hires, and we chat about how that transition happened. We also talk about why he wanted to study finance, and he shares a couple good stories about being in these awkward situations where fraud is uncovered. I really enjoyed working with Ainsley, and I always enjoy catching up with him, so let's get into it.
1: Welcome to stuff. can you see my screen? No, I don't think so, because it's just for listening the guy who brings up work stuff at parties my name is andy and i want you to join me work stuff a podcast work stuff professional stories casually told
2: well how you doing man i'm good man how you doing i've
0: been really good busy as ever always but that's kind of how i like things
2: When, uh, you told me about doing this, I was like, oh, this sounds pretty great. And I feel like you'd be a pretty good presence on it. I always feel like you could be a DJ if you wanted to, you know, late evening kind of DJ. You've got that kind of soothing voice for it.
0: Wow. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if that's my speed, but I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I I was excited to reach out to you. We have, you know, a common employer in Flowcast. So I definitely want to hit on that, but what are you up to? I'm, I'm looking up open influence. What is that all about? What do you do there and how's it been?
2: Yeah. So I started an open influence earlier this year, probably about midway through the year. I started just doing some consulting work for them. So what open influence is, Mm -hmm. is they do social media marketing and Mm -hmm. they previously had been a service company. So they have a lot of the traditional account management, um, AEs kind of reaching out, getting business, getting a lot of repeat business, but relying very heavily on people and the people knowledge and the people processes to ensure the success for those. And Mm -hmm. then their CTO over there had thought of like, hey, we've got a lot of data based off of all of that. um, We should try to create a data product and try to create a SaaS product. Mm -hmm. And that's when they reached out to me and I came on, joined as in a consulting role to start to get it off the floor. And then about three months later, I joined them full time. And uh, that's where I'm the director of product and engineering. So what yeah. we're doing now is building a SaaS product of all of the data from social media as far as like you know what influencers are saying, how that impacts brands. It allows brands to understand their marketing strategies, their spend and the overall impact on it. So what mm-hmm. I'm trying to do is make it a very data centric product so people can use that information, keep tabs on their competitors, keep tabs on their own social media impact and their social media influence and use it primarily to make big picture decisions. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, we're still relatively early stage kind of only having about seven months (laughs) of work under us. Um, Mm -hmm. So with that, there's been a lot of learning and a lot of that learning on my end has come from that growth side. So I've been doing product for about, I don't know what year it is now, probably about seven years or so, six Mm -hmm. or seven years. And I've done little elements of growth here and there, but not from scratch. Like I am here, you know, it's kind of like, okay, how much do we need to spend? How much do we need to get people in? What's that process look like? And my overall goal, we do have a sales team, but my goal is to have a lot of our product and our prospects coming in, using the product, get the trials and have a very hands-off approach that's mainly managed by the product itself so that the AEs can go ahead and focus purely on some of the, you know, whale hunting, some of the bigger prospects and things like that.
0: Yeah. And I see quite a few of those already under their belt you know you've got mm. some pretty awesome logos already but it's also yes, like yeah i have to imagine these brands are like desperate to get into the game right like you just got to throw money mm-hmm. at it if you're at that point you know you can't t- to be cool you can't just like manufacture <laughs> that on your
2: own that's yeah it's very true and you know the past two years tiktok has made such a presence such an opportunity Mm -hmm. for it. where it's going in the future. I wish I could say I knew, but um, I have no idea. But yeah, you're right. Like a lot of people are doing it. I mean, it does help as far as sales and reputation, but a lot of people are doing it just to stay relevant because Mm -hmm. it's come up a lot as far as companies coming in, wondering what their competitors are doing and if they are spending enough, if they're overspending, underspending, if they're aligning with the right people. So yeah, lots of opportunity in there, even though it's You know, I I feel like it's still a growing opportunity, even though it's shifting tremendously across platforms and everything like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, long gone are the days where you just hire the intern to like manage the Mm -hmm. Facebook page and the Twitter. (laughs) Are you guys also trying to get into like B2C? Like you trying to capture just like Joe Schmo influencer, trying to like launch his own brand, or are you just uh, helping brands create this new media channel
2: more so on the brand side? So it's mainly B2B exclusively working with brands right now, brands and marketing agencies.
0: And so, and that's what you were doing before, or the brand, the company was doing before they were doing services. And so the natural Mm -hmm. next thing is platform, which, you know, some companies do platform and then services, just kind of the two Mm -hmm. marry each other.
2: Yeah. And this is also different for me coming into a services business, because I'm responsible for managing both and they have their own software, their own goals and things. You and I, we come more from the, the tech background where, you know, it's SaaS forward and SaaS first. So... Learning a lot more about services is very interesting compared to my background in just the tech space, which is, you know, build a software and enable users to make their decisions and do all their work on that software. So learning the services side and all the nuance of it and, you know, the people on those teams have 10 years experience with this stuff, of course. And then there's me who, um, if anyone knows me, I've not been much of a social media person. So, you know, if you were to look at it, you'd probably be like, what is this guy doing here? But... I'm taking it from like the data um, side of things of right. which that's kind of like the approach I'm taking and I'm learning all the nuance around social media as I can do.
0: Cool. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. I mean, the, the opportunity has to be massive for this kind of thing. So very exciting. Are you um, building out a team and everything? Like, I'm just curious what the investment is in, on this side of
2: the business yeah so we haven't well we built we brought on some engineers but we haven't built out i'm going to hopefully hire um, somebody specifically to do some marketing sometime next year and also another product person then continue to grow our engineering team but for the first six months that i've been here it's just been let's see if we can make this stick and let's see what kind of clients we can land to make sure that this is viable so i think from a from a standpoint i don't know if we're fully viable that where i'd like to be but i think we've proved the value for the product so I'm hoping for the first six months of next year to be another large growth. And then hopefully from there, we'll start filling in some more opportunities.
0: That is awesome. It's cool to see like kind of where different people branch off into. And I guess like people that don't know you, they might think that you've always been in product and you kind of hinted at this, mm-hmm. but that wasn't your background As a lot of people I'll probably end up interviewing <laughs> started yeah. off as you know, in the accounting and audit world. Do you want to describe just like, what did you start your career path on? And like,
2: how did you deviate from that path? Sure. So my first professional job out of university was working at a large retail bank and that kind of worked because a couple of things, one, I've just always been generally interested in finance. And one of the passions that I have is to try and make financial literacy just much Mm. more accessible and um, i figured a great training ground for that would be working at a bank so i learned a lot as far as consumer finance big bank finance loans and everything like that and then also a lot of how the consumers tend to think about it and i worked in a very affluent area and you see Mm -hmm. some people who really just understand all the different degrees of finance how to leverage you know how to leverage things like credit when to use cash and how to just maximize everything that they have but then you also see, being a, a retail bank, you also see the other side of it as well—the people that are not necessarily um, don't have that same kind of opportunity and are very much learning and struggling, you know, side to side and week to week to make sure that things do work and checks don't bounce and credit cards don't incur, you know, insane fees mm-hmm. and things like that. So I started there to do two things: one, which was to um, learn about more about banking, more about finance as a whole, but also to kind of understand more about what know people do and perceive it as and how they how they understand finance and then from there I went and worked at a nonprofit and at the nonprofit I was responsible for um, this was when I was going to back to school to pursue accounting and to pursue finance because mm-hmm. my initial okay. my initial degree was in history and as you can imagine gotcha there's not a lot you can do <laughs> with just the history degree mm-hmm. so I wanted to kind of do a little bit more um, and while also at the bank, I was initially thinking about going to law school. And while I was at the bank, I learned and I did a lot of my own little market research as far as meeting lawyers, talking to them about their business, what their day-to-day is like. But then I also happened to come across and meet some accountants. And uh, I just meshed really well with the with the accountants that came in and had some, you know, had some lunch and coffee interviews with them to kind of understand more about what they do. And that's where I decided to pursue accounting and finance. Wow. So I went to cool. school. To pursue the masters, and I worked at a nonprofit, um, and I was responsible for $5 million in revenue over at the nonprofit. And as you can imagine, someone very green who just finished their accounting two class and really had no idea what was going on. I was kind of thrown into the deep end. Um, I had two weeks of training with someone who I used to work with previously at a completely unrelated non-financial job. She got me the job over there. And yeah, I like to be in places where I can learn a lot and make an impact, which as you can see, I kind of continued that with going to lots of startups. And working over at the at the nonprofit, it, yeah, it was interesting. I don't want to say too much, but I uncovered some fraud relatively quickly and oh, wow. uh yeah and so the department of four quickly went down to three and then it went down to one and that one Great. was probably the person who who knew the least out of everyone in that room sure. but that's it's kind of what happens I, I learned a lot did a lot of extra reading and talking to you know the accounts i had met before around certain problems and then that's where my general interest in building came across I, I think a lot of people either in finance or even the engineering like a lot of them start out with trying to build out excel sheets to automate certain work yep. and um going from three people to one i absolutely had to do that while i was over there is kind of what sparked my interest in more of the builder side of things rather than just the accounting and finance side of things that's then-
0: pretty wild like that's why fdx didn't want to hire any accounting or auditing firms they don't want anyone to go poking around Mm -hmm. finding the fraud if you don't hire someone to do that then it's not going to get found right
2: exactly yeah it's You know, it's a lot easier to kind of just go with the standard day-to-day of what you've already known rather than having someone poke around and say like, hold on, ask me questions. What's going on here? And of course, there's me asking questions. Initially, it wasn't because I necessarily suspected fraud, but I was just trying to learn and understand things. Right. As you dig a little bit deeper, I found a few things that I was like, oh, okay. Um, who do I turn to? What do I do? You know?
0: Right. And then you naturally moved into one of the big four. Was it down to four by that point or were, were there like six or something in the audit firm <laughs> yeah it,
2: yep at that point it was down to four um mm-hmm. i can't remember if you asked me when i was back then i knew all the history for it because they've really embed that into you once you start totally. but yeah it was one of the big four and in that field i was ecstatic about it and i joined in their it risk and audit side of things so i was cool. doing more so IT consulting to kind of continue with a general interest as far as like from a control perspective and from a building perspective. And um, it was a very lateral move as far as my understanding goes is what to look for from a financial system and how to ensure that all controls are correct and make sure that any kind of one-offs are built correctly and then just understand a lot of systems. And I learned uh, a lot of things, things that I kind of continue to carry as far as an efficiency standpoint from a communication standpoint, but also why I learned a lot more about how to communicate with customers and to better understand what it is that they are trying to achieve. Because when I was kind of going through a lot of the controls and a lot of the very, I hope I don't offend anyone with this, but the very mundane testing that was not Mm -hmm. very fun for me, but you know, to try and make it fun, I wanted to try to understand a lot of the why's behind a lot of things like why things were built, why things are run this way. And I learned a lot more about the the backend side of things, talking to a lot of the technical teams and things like that. And that's what kept me engaged and kept me interested.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. What what? Any like interesting stories come out of that? It's like you had a couple of years there during this tech boom. I'm curious. Yep. Just like what kind of interesting things happened during that time in like that spot?
2: Yes, it, it very much was. And I was actually um, at the company I was at was auditing one of the major media companies. I don't know what I can say. I think I can say it because I think it was relatively public, but it was Sony. And this was back when Sony went through and had that very big hack. And I was partially involved with that particular team. So you can just imagine all the absolute chaos. So you're, you're very spot on as far as it was early stages, as far as trying to preserve data and only allow the certain people and certain privileges for certain groups to be able to have access to that data. And we were at ground zero for that Sony break. Um, and I wish I could say that was the only time that that happened, but then there was another very, very large telecommunications company that I had to fly out to, to kind of hop in and take a look over there as well. Um, wow. because you're, like you said, it was very much a transition from the old systems, from like the old legacy systems or having all of their data in-house and then figuring out like, how can we. Make this more accessible, especially for the multinational teams and companies mm-hmm. that need access to that information. So it was very much a wild, wild west for a totally. lot of it, and it uh, opened up a lot of susceptible data. But it was it was a great learning experience to kind of figure out like why things are important, and then it helped reiterate the general concepts of the controls and the access that I had learned previously.
0: I didn't know that about you. You must've been such a prime candidate for Flowcast at the time. Like I Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a better candidate to join that type of software. I just have one question on the Sony thing. I'm just curious, was there like a day zero big event that happened where everyone found out about this and it was just like, okay, now my time here, it is now different.
2: Yeah, it very much was. And, um, I was at another client that day. And then we received an email early on in the morning, just kind of like, Hey, everybody heads up, it's about to get wild, you know? And then they had kind of the email as far as like, Hey, you know, don't talk to anybody, don't talk to media and all that stuff because they didn't want to lay it all out in the email, what had happened, but they just wanted everyone to be aware like, Hey, this is really happening and it's really not great. And you're going to be hearing a lot about it. It's going to be in the news. And yeah, it was absolutely wild. And I was at the Sony studios working like two days beforehand and everything fine. And I think you summed it up pretty well. Like there's oftentimes that moment in which you know that things aren't going to be the same afterward. And that was very much that thing. Like the changes that Sony did immediately and thereafter and all the PR fallout, it really changed not just their practice, but our company's, you know, EY's practice as well. But that also impacted the rest of the big four and the way that they for sure. conducted any kind of security, any kind of cloud reviews, anything like that.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine just the downstream effects, not only on that niche of B2B software that Flowcast was in, but mm-hmm. just in scrutiny everywhere, just moving systems for anything. The PR nightmare that you might face is so risky. The, the brand reputation is so risky. Why roll the dice by going with this status quo, right?
2: Right. Exactly. And I can't imagine being in that situation today just because of how much quicker news moves around. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be it would be a crazy, crazy thing to experience nowadays.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess we're kind of going through it with, with FTX. I mean, it still happens, I guess. People Very get much. reeled in by the story and, and what's going on around them, even mm-hmm. the biggest names in the media. There's like serious FOMO. Everyone experiences this FOMO. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently you can just create this narrative just by branding things and sponsoring things like the MLB. Umpires had FTX on them. It just feels like it's a legit company, but right. not even hire an accounting team or get audited, I guess. Crazy.
2: yep. absolutely crazy. Because you and I, I don't think we would start a company like that. We'd be like, okay, finances and accounting, right? you know, once the time is ready, it needs to be ironed out because it can really, really bring your downfall. Yeah,
0: totally. So I guess that's a good lead in for those that don't know Flowcast is accounting software. It's not an ERP system. It's what connects to it and it Helps you close the books faster. Both Ainsley and I worked there and you didn't start in product, right? You started on the setup team, helping customers get started with the system.
2: Correct. Yeah. So I I initially came in, um, I was the number two on the setup team. So it was early stage and it was a good problem to have that our initial setup team was needing help. And I can tell you about the interview process and I'd be interested to hear about yours too, because when I first started, it was the COO, Chris, who reached out to me. And he was very interested in my background. Like you mentioned, I, I feel like it was a solid fit given everything else. You know, I can kind of talk to all aspects of that business from the consulting side, making sure that the data is accurate, is correct, but then also from the user side, from when I was working at the nonprofit and how to make sure that the financials were in a good state to report, we could close everything and just make sure that everything was kind of presentable in a financial package. So he reached out to me and we had a conversation. And then he invited me over to flowcast's office at the time for an interview and i remember getting there and it was it was a house you know it was a two bedroom right two bedroom house i think it was yeah, two bedroom house one bathroom and i do remember once i got to the house it was in valley Glen, i think it was i remember taking a photo of the house and texting a friend of mine and saying hey i'm going into this house if you don't hear from me in two hours I was last seen at this house you know right this is my first my first time kind of going to like a really early stage startup and seeing that experience right. so then i go knock on the door and a gentleman answers the door wearing shorts and sandals and greets me and i was like oh here i am coming from ey where i'm dressed in business casual and then i just peek in the door and i'm like oh okay, I am very much out of place. So I ripped off my tie, rolled up my sleeves the best I could, undid a button or two and walked in. And I realized that the person that opened the door in sandals and shorts was a guy by the name of Mike, who was the CEO who greeted me. Crazy. So, but yeah. you, you also then,
0: knew their background, right? Like they, they were also from that world, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, Chris had mentioned that Mike and he had some of that background and that helped calm my nerves once I found out it was Mike because I was like, okay, Mike kind of understands where I'm coming from I don't think he's going to be too judgmental about this guy showing up to a startup where everyone's wearing shorts and shirts and sandals right. for the most part if i show up dressed the way i am so he quickly calmed my nerves and i enjoyed everyone i spoke with and um leaving i wasn't too sure what was going to happen because i was kind of earlier on in their interview and i remember chris reaching out to me and said hey we really enjoyed it but we have a lot more interviews we'll get back to you in two weeks and for the most part when someone says well, i'll get back to you in two weeks i'm like okay that opportunity is closed you know so i walked out of there thinking like "Eh, it was a good experience but i'm not going to hear much from it and then a week later sure enough chris stays on top of it so it's like hey just make sure you're still interested we still have a couple more interviews and we should be able to figure something out by the end of the week and again keeping my same mentality i was like yeah sure whatever we'll see what happens and then at the end of the two weeks he reached out to me and made me the offer so i guess the impression was good enough that it lasted because for the most part at least when i've done hiring. The last person usually kind of sticks with you the most compared to someone who was yeah. done very, very early on. And it's just yeah. that, you know, that recency bias with it. So it worked out it was really interesting
0: that's super cool i'll share my experience i was not in the house um mm-hmm. you guys had moved to a former dentist office so it definitely looked like a dentist office still <laughs> yeah with like yeah. just computer screens shoved in there but i remember like doing a bunch of research on companies and i was in seattle at the time so i flew in for like fourth of july weekend with a few interviews lined up in la and flowcast was definitely like my number one like this company has a great website and great reviews and the product seems good like it just checked all the boxes i was like i need to like nail this you know and so Mm -hmm. yeah i was like all serious and i go in and it's for an entry-level sales gig that you know usually people out of college are, are applying to and there's just a ping pong table in the middle and the guy that i'm interviewing with is like okay one sec almost done with this game barefoot and like i'm just gonna go wait in the conference room i guess and we have the most casual interview you can imagine it's more like uh meet a fellow bdr and see how you vibe but it was just so funny. I was like, man, I want to be here so badly.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, I remember the last part of my interview was done in the kitchen. And I remember a Flowcast employee just going to the fridge and grabbing a beer. And then noticing that I was in an interview, I was like, hey, man, you want a beer? Help you relax. You know, and I was like, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that right now, but so I test? think I'm going to have to pass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, if I say yes, is that good or is that bad? You know, I don't right. know, so I'm just going to I'm just going to avoid it. We'll see what happens.
0: Hilarious. So you had this like crazy view of you're basically in customer success, onboarding clients to this new thing. It's a little different from what they're used to, but you're trying to work it so that it's not right, and it's not too much of a process change. And you're asking for their trial balance and stuff. How did you make the shift from that kind of role into like actually developing the product itself?
2: Yeah. So that's uh, that's a good question. So a lot of times, what I learned at Flowcast. And what I tend to try and do at each company thereafter I go to is I'm very interested in the product itself. And I tend to also just have a general interest to understand all the nuances. I try to do a little bit of, I wouldn't say QA for the purpose of getting product out the door, but QA just to understand all the little nuance. And in that case, I want to be able to explain the complete ins and outs of the product to the customers. So while I was going through that, I just happened to keep notes and notes and notes of things that I would want to improve or things that I think I would want to talk to customers about to try and validate. And this was just because I wanted them to have a better experience. Um, it wasn't with the intention of necessarily shifting to product or anything like that. But then after I had a couple conversations with clients, I turned to CTO at the time and I was like, Hey, there's a couple things that I think we can improve upon. How do we do that? How can we start that? And he was like, well, what is it? Let's talk about it. And I gave some of the feedback and he's like, okay. Well, here, why don't you write it down and then we'll start working on some of them? I was like, okay, cool. And what happened was I meshed really well with the engineering team as far as being able to communicate with them and to almost understand what they were talking about. And right. that's kind right. of where that shift happened. I was able to make a greater impact on the product, which was going to impact the day to day of our customers and our overall retention through the product itself that, you know, at first I was kind of doing both managing customers and the product. Then as we continue to grow, we decided, okay, well, what would be an easier position to fill another CSM or a product manager? And they're like, well, you've already got quite a handle on the product itself. So why don't we shift you over to here and then we'll fill the CSM role. And that's what I was able to leverage the general interest and kind of eating my own dog food QA aspect of things into a full-time product gig. Pretty
0: awesome. Unknowingly doing all the right things to make mm-hmm. that shift. It's crazy how that perspective is so valuable. You probably didn't even realize how valuable it was to, you know, head a product or anything. So very cool yeah. that you just kind of naturally realize that this was a good thing to do to take, keep track of and like find these little nuggets. And mm-hmm. this is going to, this is like a multiplier of, of good, right? To the product, you're going to increase so many different people's usage just by these little tweaks instead of like having these one-to-one calls and showing them ways around it
2: right exactly and you're very familiar with you know with yeah. being able to on the spot if something's not working you're like uh oh okay how can we think of alternatives for this you know and being able to build that into the product was was pretty exciting for me and i remember launching the first ticket i wouldn't even say feature because it wasn't a full-fledged feature my first my first swing it was just mm. a little shift in whatever it was i wish i remember what it was but And I was so excited to see it in the software and then see it being used. And that kind of really kept me going for quite a while, just launching features, getting feedback and seeing it. As far as it goes for me, cause I don't really put myself out there too much, <laughs> putting myself out there from like a product perspective and then tracking and getting feedback from customers as far as did that help their day to day. It was uh, a high worth pursuing for me. It's wild.
0: And it's the perfect stage for that too, cause your team is so nimble and it's not as complex. So, you know, it's easy to shift things and you don't have to go through all this approval. So at the end of the day, like it's all momentum based. So like the more that you do that, the more positive reviews you get. And then that traction carries mm-hmm. over to the sales team. And it's just, this small snowball that you've just been turning over and over um, in that early (laughs) stage. was pretty awesome.
2: Definitely. It was, it was so much fun.
0: One of the memories I have with you at Flowcast was going to Utah. We'd go on site to our customers who, you know, are across the U.S. And yep. we go to these cities and line up a few meetings and demo this new feature or something. And it's like, is this worth it? I can't really tell, but I'm going to do it and go and make the most of it. But I really mm-hmm. like, it was interesting to see like what our customers' offices were like. And I'm just curious from a product standpoint, what was that like for you? Did you find that beneficial to be in person versus over Zoom all the time?
2: yeah i really enjoyed the in-person and you know as you can imagine that's become a lot of times a thing of the past but i'm i hope that we can kind of get back to visiting customers in person just because i don't know how the right way to say this i feel like you can create an awkwardness in person which would Mm -hmm. get better feedback and more candid results compared to zoom or like -hmm. you know doing it over video chat just because you can create that palpable uncertainty you can ask questions and you know it's very easy from a zoom perspective just wait five seconds of silence they're like okay let's move on you know but in person you can kind of really push that and leverage that which i'd like because you get to get really sincere feedback and a lot of times if you're just doing things over the phone people might be distracted doing something else and they might not really lean in and tell you what's frustrating about your product or what's frustrating about your sales cycle or anything like that whereas in person, I've always gotten great, great engagement and feedback compared to, you know, just doing it over Zoom.
0: Yeah, same. And I've always found from the customer success side, when you're in person, you realize that some other external factors in play and you can help with that somehow. Definitely went a long way in person.
2: Yeah. From like the product and the CSM perspective, you know, we discuss it and we're on the same page and, you know, we try to ensure that it's easy enough for people to use before we launch it. But if it's just an echo chamber within the office, you know, you and I discussing things and we're like, why wouldn't this work? This makes complete sense. But -hmm. then like you said, you find out that there's just a little thing that may not be clear, or it may be an extra two clicks or something like that, that Mm -hmm. we just took for granted and then seeing them struggle with it and how much that opened up my eyes for those things. You know, so it's it's a very good point that you bring that up.
0: It was definitely very cool to be like that close to the customer, you kind of identify these little things to tweak and seeing it actually take shape is pretty wild. And then seeing the evaluation of the company ex- explode later on, like you just kind of smile at that, like, wow. Um, right. Yeah. Very cool, man. It's a, uh, it's an exciting four years. Um, kind of curious what sparked the desire to move into something else.
2: Yeah, it was kind of a few things. One, which was, you know, new challenge uh, was, was a big one. Because it wasn't the big moving products that I was creating anymore. And it was a lot mm-hmm. of more of the little needle movers, which is still very, very interesting. But as you mentioned before, now that you have all this added complexity, you kind of have your own guardrails within what you can do and can't do. And I was just looking for something that could be a little bit more open in that in that regard. Because we're kind of shifting as a company, even though we're completely still in a, a full-on growth phase, things had to be a little bit more measured and a little bit more calculated at that point and a little bit more of the bureaucracy was kind of coming in and it was just a it was just a change from what i was used to and what i really really enjoyed so i just felt you know what maybe it's time to start looking somewhere else and i i always kind of tell myself okay what kind of size of company do i want to work for what kind of challenges do i want to look at and Mm -hmm. that's when i kind of said like i want to try I think I've got one more startup in me is what I would always say. And right. um, that's what I decided to pursue and went and joined another company where I was the, yeah, actually I was the 13th employee again, just like I was a 13th employee over at Flowcast. So that was kind of wow kind of strange. Spooky. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Very spooky. And now you're still B2B space, but just in marketing instead of fintech. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And that's been interesting. I do feel I'm always trying to figure out a way to bring financials into the product for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's something that I feel can make an impact and also it's something that I'm familiar with, but I also feel that if your product can have any kind of financial ties to reporting or to success, I feel like it can help make your product stickier in a B2B sense as well. So I'm slowly laying down the tracks to kind of figure out things for this new venture.
0: Very cool. I wanted to ask you about the pop-up entrepreneurs. It seems like something that's like a side project for you, but just curious what that is and um what's your role in that?
2: Sure. Yeah, so pop up entrepreneurs, it's definitely a side thing for me. It's my partner and myself, Mylene, we we go ahead and run it and she's great. She's got a tremendous amount of background in, in businesses as far as like small business to growth business to having her own business. And what our goal with pop up entrepreneurs is to teach kids about entrepreneurship and financial literacy so those are the two things that we try to teach people and our kids that we currently teach have been between fifth to eighth grade is where we are right now so Mm -hmm. we usually run one or two cohorts a semester and what we try to do is have a core curriculum that teaches them the concepts of business how to start a business how to launch a business how to measure and things like that of course tailored for the audience and then Mm -hmm. the end goal is that they create a business and then pitch their business in a shark tank, like atmosphere. Wow. Um, and Very cool. then what they do is they get money rewarded for it. We have plans to expand it further to our second semester for them to then build and test, but currently it's just in the business development phase for their, for their businesses.
0: Wow. That is super cool. How big is a cohort?
2: So our cohorts are usually about 20 to 40, depending on the class itself. And then we usually break them into groups, depending on how many there are. The groups can be as small as three or as large as five. And we, we try to have them always in groups just because it's one of those things that, you know, as I've learned, business is so much developed by the partnerships that you can create and what you can create as a team versus what you can create in a silo. So I feel it's really important to kind of introduce them to that while they're young and they actually, it's really interesting for them because they have to make these decisions as far as, okay, what is this person's strength versus this person's strength and how can we maximize that? And then it also has come up that at the end, when they receive their funding, they are fully in the decision as far as what they want to do with that funding thereafter. And, you know, sometimes they might even reflect and say like, Hey, Person A didn't really contribute that much. So they have to make real decisions as far as what do they do about that? Do they still let them have an equal amount in the partnership, an equal amount of funding? Or do they cut that down and say like, hey, as a business, we decided that we have to do this
0: you know? Wow. That's pretty awesome that you give them that sandbox to play in, right?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it's very experimental because sometimes it works perfectly, but sometimes it puts a little bit of an awkward situation, but I think it's good for them to be able to at least discuss that and be introduced to those kind of things.
0: Yeah. That's very cool. I didn't know about that about you. So appreciate you sharing that. I uh, would love to learn more actually. So I don't know if you ever share finished projects or finished, I don't know if they end up with a website or something, but I would totally check it
2: out. Yeah, we'll be we're developing a website, which hopefully will launch in like February or March, and we can definitely discuss. I mean, I'd love to have you as like a, as a shark. Oh, yes. That. You can kind of, yeah, you can come in, talk to the kids, get the best ideas out of them.
0: I mean, I don't know. You've just got to give them all headsets and two monitors in front of them and, you know, <laughs> like standing desks and just a room full of that. That's the only thing I can add, really um cool man i was curious your take on the ai in chat bots and artwork people are worried of copyright or plagiarism on the artwork side especially but also like how can these things be used and are you thinking about ways to use these free chat ai things in your own work i'm curious where, where your head's at
2: yeah so first of all what's happening in that in that field i'm interested in i think it's a it's a great start but like you said it It introduces a lot of opportunity and that opportunity could be leveraged to be plagiarism or it could be to create something that's truly just individual and unique. But when you're just sourcing a lot of data, you know, that's already kind of been published, it's almost inevitable that you're going to see some redundancies and some repeating concepts or even repeating phrases in there. Mm -hmm. So the AI and chatbots, actually I'll talk talk about the artwork first, I guess. Um, I love it because I'm not an artist. So I love that I can go ahead and create something that just visually for me would be very, very fun, very cool to be able to share, to use, Mm -hmm. to have in my apartment or to, you know, leverage on our website or anything like that. So I, I love that because I generally don't need to worry about the ethics of it. But if I published more, or if I was an artist myself, then I would definitely be, you know, questioning it a little bit more. And I've seen that kind of coming up as a conversation is people are seeing things that are largely influenced off of their unique art. And um, that, I I think that needs to be understood and developed a lot more. And I don't really know the right way for it, but as there's more models that are developed for this AI artwork, I think it's something to definitely be keeping an eye on as far as what could that do for people. But are we gonna get away from the actual value of art? you know, like we had NFTs and individual art and everything like that blowing up for a while, even though there was still some sort of concept of AI artwork. So I Mm -hmm. think AI artwork is probably going to be able to serve a lower tier of consumer, if that makes sense. Um, Whereas the traditional artwork, and again, I might just be talking out of my you-know-what, but I feel like (laughs) they might be able to divide the two a little bit further. And then even with AI artwork, creating standard art, And, you know, unique art, I think it might even make it more valuable in the long-term. But I think it's going to be a lot of growing pains and it will probably lower the number of available art and art pieces and artists as a whole, just because it will cannibalize a lot of what they can do in the near term until they get to that inflection point of which they will be unique because they will figure out a different kind of medium or maybe it will move away from digital or something like right. that, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, art as a field always continues to mature, but also shift and yeah. you know have a different kind of dynamic around what's popular at that time. And it really gives a, a tremendous history of the point in time, which a lot of AI artwork that I've kind of seen, it looks really cool, but it's not necessarily telling you that full-on story that you mm-hmm. would get from someone kind of commissioning an art piece.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I love to learn about what the artist was going through or the historical references and, oh, like this person's facing away. And so that means this. I love that story. And you're not going to get that from an AI bot. You're going to get like mm-hmm. more of a jumbled mess that still looks visually appealing. There's just not that historical context or reference in there. But still, right. it will be interesting. I was just going to ask if you use ChatGPT for, for work at all.
2: Yeah, I haven't. I haven't used it for work yet. Um, I had access to OpenAI. Probably about, I can't remember, about a year and a half or two years ago. And I was jamming on it back then. But then I just kind of slipped out of it and stopped playing with it. But I see there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for it on like, you know, from the work perspective and from the individual perspective. I'm the kind of person that takes notes anywhere and everywhere. I'm always writing things down. But the problem Mm -hmm. with that is, where did I leave that note? I had a conversation. Where did I write the notes for it? So then I have to go back and, you know, go through my four or five different things. I have two notebooks on my desk and then I have Mm -hmm. the notes app, which I keep with me on my phone and on my laptop. And then I have, you know, Word docs and then Google docs. So as you can imagine, I'm just like a unorganized mess and having a chat bot that would be able to take all of that information together and be able to just kind of query it and get that feedback and get that information back. That would be very, very powerful for me from a personal standpoint. And then also whenever you're working at a, at a company in general, there's always a lot of content that floats around. And most of the time you have to say it, like I'd have to turn to you and be like, Hey, Andy, I know that you, you wrote this a couple of weeks ago. And I remember that there was this little tidbit of information that was really important to me. Where Mm -hmm. was that? You know, and I have to like contact you. Then you have to take a few minutes to switch gears, find that, and then share it with me. And you know, being able to have the chatbot on top of your file system for work, I think would be very, very powerful as well. But I haven't uh, dove into it quite yet, as far as how we can get that into action.
0: Yeah, I mean, my my hack for note taking in general is like document as much as I possibly can in Slack, and I'll use very specific words that I know that I'll search for later so that I can just Mm -hmm. find it very easily. So now I have this whole context if I just search in Slack, but yeah, I have not heard that one before.
2: Yeah, I would like that because we use primarily Google Drive. And Mm -hmm. you can imagine, unless you have somebody that is responsible for formatting all the information, things just become a, a convoluted mess in there. And I can attest from our side of things it's a convoluted mess in there.
1: <laughs> oh yeah,
0: totally. I've seen I've seen my fair share of Google Drive environments to know what that is. Cool, man. One thing I like to ask folks is just do you have any other podcasts that you listen to or would recommend to folks that are listening?
2: Yeah. I mean definitely when you when you launch, I definitely wanna you know, I'm gonna purge and go through all of yours. And then other podcasts, I used to be a bigger podcast person because I would be driving a lot more. Specifically back when I was at EY, you know, I'd be flying a lot. I'd be driving a lot. So I'd want to have something other than music playing. But since COVID, it's really cut down. But I do have a few that I still kind of listen to. And those are going to be, And again, I don't know if they're still making current things. But I've got, I love history. So Hardcore History by Dan Carlin is one of them. Totally. Um, But you've got to be able to buckle down and be ready. Because he does some really deep dives. Like His episodes are like three or four hours, you know. So um, what I used to do is when I'd be driving up north for work or something like that, I would pop him in and say, Okay, let's go and just be listening to him the entire time. Um, another one that I listen to is more product related. And that is going to be I got a lot of them. But Lenny's podcast, he was he was a growth PM, or early stage growth PM over at Airbnb. And what he does is he does a lot of interviews with other world renowned product people. But the thing that I like about him, him is it's not, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of product has a lot of theory, but then sometimes you look at it and you're like, oh, that theory sounds great, but that's not the world that we live in. And his podcasts have much more actionable and they seem to kind of understand a little bit more around the constraints. Like you might have financial constraints around things, engineering constraints, marketing constraints, and they talk about those as well. And they talk about how to work within systems rather than, Striving and working with the ideal system, um, just because that ideal system yeah. doesn't always exist,
0: right? Fact, and then, it's very much often, yeah. it's not
2: ideal, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because like I've been fortunate enough to read some books around product and they've got great insights. But then I look at it, I was like, God, if that's, I mean, like, yeah, if that's the way that it worked at my company, then it would be a lot easier, but it's not, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, for real. It's nice to imagine the perfect world, but that's yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll check that one out. It looks it must be an interesting time to be at airbnb during that time
2: yeah and like i said i I like it because it's actionable and he also he has a newsletter that i subscribe to him that's he had the newsletter and then he started the podcast so i like to consume a lot of my information through reading just because i don't think i'm the i don't think i learn extremely well through listening especially when it's more of a complex topic but whereas like I do read and I can make notes and understand keywords and keep those keywords in there for reference and things like that
0: mm-hmm. yeah cool dude well this was uh this is an awesome discussion it was really cool to see what you're doing now and uh, I like that you're still in the product world building cool stuff and you're like riding another wave you know that's that's happening <laughs> in society which is cool that seems to be growing like crazy this influencer marketing stuff um, yep. really great to catch up man uh, we should catch up in person sometime soon though
2: definitely man thank you for reaching out it's wonderful to hear from you and um look forward to everything and anything that you're doing going forward man wish you the best wish you all the success right
0: on you too man stay in touch
1: all right thanks for joining work stuff can you see my screen no i don't think so because it's just for listening i'm the guy who brings up work stuff At parties, my name is Andy, and I thank you for joining me. Work Stuff, a podcast, professional stories casually told on Work Stuff.